Hi, Abyss. How are you? Thanks for coming. I'm doing good. Thanks for the invite. Hi, Victoria. How are you doing today? Very well. Hello, friends. Nice to see you. Hi, Victoria. Hey, Abyss. Katarina. Hey, Zoila. Got a friend in the audience. Welcome. Welcome, Arif. I was reading the research and I was trying to imagine the little nematode worms uh, aging more gracefully than they had previously. Yeah, it's really interesting that plant. Um, it, it's inter the paper is really interesting because of the fat component, but I guess our speaker will talk all about it. I'm really looking forward to hear about Yes, I'm pleased about that. Maybe help people relax about intake. Hey, Sissy Rahim. Hey. Hello. How's your day going? Anyone else doing taxes? No, you know what? I should I should do that soon. <laughs> it's not going to be difficult though, because I just like submit everything to uh, someone else to do it for me. But I haven't been able to do that. That's a great method. How long does it take? Mine, mine doesn't take too long. I don't know. Maybe it's because, you know, someone else does it, but. Well, I'm going on a few days over here. Hey, Jamie. Hello, everybody. Hello and welcome, Dr. Bonnert. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, thanks so much for coming. Hello, Doctor. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah, absolutely. Hello. Let's wait a few more minutes um, to let people have time to arrive. And then uh, if it's OK, I'll introduce you to the audience, give a little bit background information. And then Victoria um, asks like a more general question like, how you became a scientist type of question. I hope that's that's okay with you. Sure, no problem. Great. And after that, your the stage is yours, <laughs> basically. Thank you.
everyone's so quiet. I'm sorry, I cannot unmute while I'm inviting people in. <laughs> How is everyone's day? Uh, I was looking up images of the Artemisia <laughs> because I was thinking, Dr. Bonnet, if um, it would be fun, it could be fun for you to learn how to change your your uh, biopic there, which is really lovely with your initials. But if you didn't want a photo, you could you could screenshot something and then put that there in its place. So I'm yeah, that's a good idea. I should look into that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's very fun. Like for example, here, um, there. So now my Peter, do you see? Has it changed for you? Maybe it looks like something familiar. Uh, not yet, not for me yet. But if you pull the top of your screen down and then let it bounce back, we call that pull to refresh. Then you should see. Perfect. An, an now image. I see it. Yes. <laughs> I thought that would be more fun than being the nematode worm. Nothing. Oh, maybe I'll do that. How do I change my picture? I can do it right okay. here. Okay. So find a screenshot of an image that you would like to use. Okay. And then that'll be in your photos. And then once you've gotten the screenshot, should I tell you what to do next? Or should I wait? Um, almost there. Give me okay. one second. This is one of the best tutorials you can get for Clubhouse. And you can change it again. Yeah, sorry for being you don't have to stick with this one. Okay, I'm just gonna oh. get a warm picture here. True, Jamie. So, Jamie, I have, I am the um, a sort of, I guess the, it's not leafy. It's more. What would you? How do you describe the the leaf form or the forms? That would Dr. make sense Bond? because my my screen my voiceover has been reading something that was leafy. I, I just assumed it was some kind of like you know graphic for the room or something. But is that you? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not. Uh, there's a different word that I I can't recall a botanical term for the shape of the these leaf-like structures, um, but that's what it is. It's it's the um, it's the Artemisia scoparia. Yeah, doctor, yeah. I was just in a, I found your uh, an article um, about I believe it's, it's your work on Science Daily. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. when um when you're like working on that that big word for the name of the extract for the plant that I just don't remember. I, every time I read it, the name's completely up my head as soon as it's done. But yeah, um, so it's right. It's the Artemisia, the Artemisia uh, scoparia plant. Absolutely. That looks absolutely fascinating. I had to like make myself to stop writing down questions because I was like, this, 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 this person has a limited time. He can't move in. He can't just spend his whole time answering questions, but I'm, I'm very, very excited for your talk. Yeah. Oh, this... great. Thank you. So I'll let you know. I think you've probably found your screenshot by now. Yes. Yes. Okay. So all you do is tap. Oh, I, think on... I, I think I got it. So check okay. if it comes through now. Cool. Oh, okay. Great. Oh yeah. I see it. Beautiful. Okay. So we've got a little <laughs> nematode worm, um, selfie in black and white. <laughs> That's very dramatic. It's very elegant somehow. <laughs> I feel. I, I like it's it. a great image. Like, it's a great visual. 
Yeah, it looks like a designer. See elegance. Oh yeah, there's a lot of lot of good ones I'm pulling up here. <laughs> I wish I had a better one just <laughs> just available of even the fluorescent animals. Those are those are really beautiful. I'll try to find them. What is their name? Yeah, but just in one color. It's like you know, Karl Lagerfeld say it says if you only dress in one color, you're always mm -hmm. elegant. So, <laughs> and the name is the elegant. Good and point. <laughs> Good point. I'll look up the fluorescent in the meanwhile. Okay. Uh, I think we can slowly start. So, welcome everyone to the Science Society. Uh, thank you for coming, and a special thanks to Dr. Adam Bonard. Um, um, we are really honored to having you here today and let me give you a little bit of background information about our guest speaker today. Um, he's an assistant professor at the um, CB, CDIB division and um, he did his bachelor in science with summa cum laude in biology at the Rhodes College Memphis, Tennessee and his PhD in cell and developmental biology at the Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And his, he did his postdoctoral training with Dr. Cynthia Kenyon's laboratory, University of California, San Francisco, and Calico Life Science, San Francisco Bay Area. And um, he his lab investigates the fundamental question in the field of aging, um, so um, how are offspring formed from the cells of even very old parents born young? That question, I think it's really very interesting. And um, yeah, so uh, he also received numerous awards and um, from the WM Keck Foundation Medical Research Grant and AFAR Glenn Foundation Junior Faculty Grant and so on. So uh, yeah, it's a great honor to have you here. And uh, Victoria, go ahead. All right. Thank you, Katarina. Uh, so Dr. Bonard, Science Society welcomes you. And to make you feel welcome, it's really nice to ask a kind of a get to know you couple of questions. And so my question for you is, when do you feel that you recognize that you had a particular interest in science? Maybe when you were a child or somewhat older in your life? And then how did that lead you to your current research? Yeah, thank you. Thank you all. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to be here and uh, to talk with you. Um, so I think that's a that's an excellent question. And, you know, when I'm when I'm thinking about it, I you know, I actually really don't know when I first um, got most interested in science. Um, I had obviously been interested in biology when I was um, grade school and high school. Um, and when I went to college, I always wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I've always had dogs. Um, I, I love animals. Um, and that's just, it's, it's what I thought I would do. Um, but then when I was in college, so as Katerina was saying, um, so I went to Rhodes College, which is a small uh, liberal arts college in Tennessee. Um, and I did some research there and it was mainly ecology based. Um, 
But then I had an opportunity to do summer research at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Um, and when I was there, I was studying uh, bacteria, trying to, trying to um, really specifically understand how bacteria survive in extreme environments, such as at deep sea uh, volcanoes, um, because they have a really unique biology. And I just found the, the research experience um, you know, just sort of endlessly fascinating. Um, that these new questions, there was always new excitement, um, and that everything was just different. Um, every day was different, every experiment was different, every question was different. Um, and so that then, you know, I think really inspired me to, to move on and do research. Um, my PhD was in uh, more cell and developmental biology using uh, yeast to understand cell division. Um, how cells physically uh, divide from each other. Um, and then when I moved on to my postdoc, I became interested in this question of aging because it's, it's really, it's a fundamental question um, of why we age, how we age, can we, can we do anything about it? Um, and, you know, I thought some of the work that was being done was just really creative. Um, and, and it, it it got me interested, I think, uh, to, to try to explore that field some. So yeah, so we, we're currently, um, so as Katerina said, we, we have a few different interests. We're interested in, in you know, maybe natural ways to uh, fight the aging process. Uh, how, does, how does nature do this? And, and one way that we look at this is by looking across generations uh, with this idea that um, if, you, if you look at humans, for instance, a human is going to have uh, a kid or a baby when they're, you know, maybe 30 years old, even 40 years old. Um, and that baby is, you know, made from cells of that individual, but the baby's born brand new, right? So there has to be something natural about that. Um, we're also interested, you know, obviously with this work on Artemisia, we're interested in uh, natural products that can possibly be applied to um, promote healthy aging. And, and so there's a lot of avenues that we're now we're now getting at it. Um, but yeah, I think it just started with first getting involved in research and really seeing uh, the excitement of, of exploring just fundamental questions that I think really anyone can, can appreciate and be aware of. Um, there are still mysteries and I think there's a lot to be solved. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. And I, I hear that you're something that Oh, that's motivated you was was not well the newness, the opportunity for always discovering something that that wasn't yeah. done before. And yeah, and this is this is what I feel like you're presenting to us right now. And we're all really excited to hear. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's sort of the the newness of it and, and really still the the challenge of it. You know, it, it's obviously challenged to sort of um yeah, pave, pave something new, but, you know, being able to do really a creative pursuit, it's, it's very fulfilling. And with that, let's go into your presentation. Okay, so, um, so today I can, I can talk a little bit um, about the work that I believe Katerina has shared up here. It looks like the, the PDF file of this 
uh, presentation or the the paper. Um, so I just want to give a little bit of of context for this, um, more so than what I've what I've done already, and then I'll explain a couple of the experiments that we we did as part of this paper um, th that show some of the main points. Um, but but again, one of the one of the I think most compelling questions currently with aging biology research um, is can you can you think of aging almost as a as a disease um, historically you know in the past um, there was some debate whether or not aging was a process that could be regulated um, if it was something that just happened um, and now we certainly know that that's uh, you know, it is controlled, it is under biological control. Um, and that's something that we've really only started to grasp in the past two to three decades. Um, but sort of moving forward with that, it's, it's how do you approach it? How do you, um, you know, if you're going to therapeutically uh, target aging, what does that, what does that mean? And so, you know, I think one exciting entry point is, is uh, this idea of natural products or natural product research. Um, because there are several natural products that are known to, to act on, on biological pathways um, that we can think of as being pro-longevity or sort of pro-health. Um, and so that's, that's a little bit of the inspiration for this project. So I have, um, I've been an assistant professor at LSU um, for about four years now. Um, and when I started, um, I was talking with some people um, who work at what's called the Pennington Biomedical uh, Research Center. And this is um, a research institute that's affiliated with our university, um, but they're very focused on metabolic disease, um, obesity, and diabetes. Um, and they have a center there, it's, it's called a botanical center where they have these natural plant extracts and they, they've been studying them, uh, several of these for a while uh, because they think they have beneficial effects on metabolic health. Um, and, and when I was starting at LSU and I was, I was looking at some of the research that they did, um, I became interested in the possible connections with, with our research on aging, uh, just because it's known that, that really this uh, metabolic functioning, this metabolic resilience um, is a core facet um, that controls the, the rate or the pace um, of aging. And so I was, I was excited to think, you know, maybe I could get, uh, you know, my hands on some of these extracts that they have available as part of this, um, of this center and to try some of these out using our favorite animal, which is the nematode C. elegans. Um, which is it lends itself really well to aging biology research because it has many of the same genes uh, that you would see in mammals or even humans, uh, but it's only going to live about two to three weeks. So you can you can assess and analyze uh, lifespan and aging um, over a relatively short uh, period. Of Versus 30 years or so, as you were mentioning earlier. Exactly. And, and the, the, so the really fascinating thing about this is that, um, you know, when some of the original seminal work that was done by Cynthia and Ke Cynthia Kenyon and others, um, identifying genetic mutations um, that 
that could make C. elegans live longer, dramatically longer, even double their lifespan. Um, you know, the obvious question was, um, how does this relate to, say, an animal that lives a couple of years or even decades, right? Does that, does that relate at all? Um, and what's fascinating now is that, um, you know, others have studied, even in humans, centenarians, individuals that live 100 years um, or more, and what they found is that these same genetic changes um, that, that, you know, all these different groups of scientists have found can lengthen lifespan of C. elegans, these same genetic changes you detect um, just naturally in these, these long-lived humans. Um, and so it really does suggest that these, these, um, these findings that we're making uh, using these more tractable organisms, that they can give us real insight um, into, you know, possibly aging in a, in a mammalian or a human context even. And uh, so when we first started this, there were, there were a couple of extracts that we were, we were working with and um, we, were, we were mixing them in with the worm food on the worm plates and we were putting the worms on there. And then what happens is you just track the worms each day. You come and you look at the plates and by the time they're about 10 days old, they start to die off and they'll continue dying off until they're about, again, two to three weeks old. Um, but you're looking at a whole population. You're looking at, you know, 200, 300 animals under any condition. So there's going to be some variation within that. Um, and what was exciting was when we were putting them on one of the extracts, um, we, were, we were noticing that there were uh, some differences. And uh, if you can see the little picture that I took a screenshot of here and put as my my profile pic, I guess. Um, these these nematodes, they are um, they're transparent, and so you can you can look at them and actually tell something about physiology um, just by looking through the microscope at the animals uh, through bright light. It doesn't even have to be fluorescence. You can just look through bright light and you can see uh, through the animal and actually see different tissues. And the actual first thing that we realized that was interesting was that the animals looked um, a little thicker. They looked a little thicker. They sort of looked fatty in a way. Um, they, they appeared uh, to be fatter um, than, than the control animals. Um, and one reason that was interesting was that this was how the extract that we were working with, that, that was how it was originally identified. So there was, there was work done by Jackie, Dr. Jackie Stevens, who's at Pennington, and they had screened uh, over, I think it was 400 botanical extracts to see if they could identify an extract that affected fat cell um, differentiation. And they found this one. And they found that if they gave uh, this extract to mice that were on a high fat diet, uh, that those mice were, were healthier, that they were metabolically healthier uh, because of some action that this, this extract was helping with, okay? And so this was interesting to us when we first started because we thought, okay, well, we're giving them the worms this extract. At some level, it seems like it's, it's um, having some effect. There's going to be some response. Let's see what we see with um, longevity, with sort of aging. And so if you, um, if you look at the, the manuscript, the paper file, the PDF, um, and you look at the first figure, figure one, um, and you can look at the panel A is fine. Um, what this is, is this is a, a typical lifespan uh, 
plot or graph that you will see. Um, and again, we're looking at days of adulthood on the bottom. Uh, so if you look at the, the normal worms, which are the wild type worms, WT uh, control, that's going to be the black line. And the populations dying out really between uh, 10 to you know 25 days or so. Um, that's, that's where that sort of line is plummeting down. Um, however, the, the, I guess, more magenta and blue lines, um, these are going to be the populations that have been treated with uh, what's labeled as SCO, which we call SCO or SCOPA, which is for this um, Artemisia scoparia um, uh, extract. And what you notice is that they're really living quite long. They're not actually starting to die off until after the other population, the control population is you know, maybe 50% dead by that point, right? And uh, we did this in multiple replicates to try to try to understand just how much this was increasing lifespan. And so in, in B, this is demonstrating that. And really it averaged or it hovered around 40%, a 40% increase in, in mean lifespan. And so this is, this is um, fairly significant um, and, and it's obviously robust. Um, and the other exciting thing about it that you see in panel C of figure one is that we also tried uh, giving them this extract, the worms this extract, not really just throughout adulthood, but really starting at a later stage of adulthood. Because if you would think of, again, maybe some sort of therapy, um, the idea is maybe you're already giving this to some to adult animals that have already aged a little bit. And so when we did this um, in panel C of the first figure in the lighter pink, what you'll see is that it, it still increases lifespan, um, about 20% in that case. Um, so not as much as when we started on the first day of adulthood, um, but it still is able to do it um, to a significant uh, amount, right? And so that was something that was really exciting to us because, um, we obviously thought, you know, that may be a characteristic of some sort of, uh, let's say, dietary supplement um, that would that you would want to use as an anti-aging intervention. So, um, so once we got this, and we really had, I think, that the dosing down, uh, the conditions down, and we had repeated this uh, several times. You know, we were pretty um, excited. Um, because obviously, again, the, the, the results were robust, they were very repeatable, um, and the animals were showing differences sort of by lifespan, as well as just by eye. When we looked at them by eye, again, they, they appeared somewhat different, okay? And so if you skip along, so we'll actually skip over figure two. If you go to figure three, which is right next to that, um, one thing that we were we were interested in looking at again because of this history of of studying this extract in more of mammalian cell culture um, we were interested to try to see if it was affecting uh fat regulation if we could if we could see any um evidence of this because we were curious whether or not if it was changing fat um was that something that was going into this change in longevity and so if you look at panel A of figure three, um, what we're using here is a, it's a type of dye, a type of stain um, that's going to label um, fat in these worms. And so these are worms that are just laid out. And the idea is uh, 
the darker red that they appear, they're going to have uh, more fat. And so um, the top two panels are the wild type, the normal worms. Um, the very top one is just a control. And then the second top one is the ones treated with this SCO or SCOPA, um, the extract. And what you can see is that the SCO treated worm uh, shows more fat by the staining, and that's quantified in B. Um, we also did some other assays uh, to try to specifically pinpoint unsaturated fats because there is, um, I think, emerging evidence that unsaturated fats are particularly um, powerful um, when it comes to sort of pro-health mechanisms. And so in panel C, we were, we were quantifying full change in unsaturated fatty acids. And what you'll see here is there was a significant increase with the extract. And then one other thing that was really, really striking was um, we decided to look at some of the, the enzymes um, that, that catalyze uh, the biosynthesis of these unsaturated fats or unsaturated fatty acids. And so we were particularly interested in three of these, fat five, fat six, and fat seven, which you'll see in D, E, F, G, and H of figure three. And these are, uh, these are desaturase enzymes. Um, they, they help to make the unsaturated fatty acids. And when we looked at the levels of these, um, so if you just look at panel E, this is maybe the easiest. We're looking at the, the protein level, so the actual levels um, of the enzyme. And we're looking by fluorescence because uh, these desaturases are fused to a, a fluorescent protein. So they're fused to GFP here. So they're going to uh, be labeled in these pictures as green. And so you'll see um, a variety of worms uh, laid out in these images. And what you'll notice is on the bottom panels, you can actually see some green. Um, whereas on the top panels, which are the controls, the signal is much weaker. Okay. And so for all three of these enzymes that help to make the unsaturated fatty acids, there's something about giving uh, the animals this extract that's that's turning on this program, right? You're making more of these enzymes. They can then help uh, in the biosynthesis of the unsaturated fatty acids. Then if we move on to figure four, um, what I'll show you here is we wanted to test um, whether or not this uh, uptick or increase um, in this pathway, right, this sort of fat regulation pathway, if this was causal in the lifespan extension. Okay, and so what our idea was, was that we would take animals that did not have function of these enzymes. So again, fat five, fat six, and fat seven. And if they were really causal, this upregulation, this increase in them, if that was really causal in the lifespan extension, you would expect if you gave those animals the extract, they would no longer live longer, right? Because they wouldn't have the key components that are needed for that. And so if you look at figure four, um, just the, the, um, the black line and the magenta line, these are just the, the wild type animals treated either with control or the extract. So again, you see about that 40% uh, mean increase. And then I'll draw your attention to, uh, I would guess they're sort of in the reddish pink colors towards the bottom on the labeling, where it says fat five, fat six, fat seven, RNAi control, 
and FAT5, FAT6, FAT7, RNAi, SCO, okay? And these are gonna be the lines that are furthest to the left on the plot um, there. And what you'll notice is that they're, obviously these populations are quite short-lived. Um, and also when you give SCO, when you give the extract here, the animals no longer live longer. These, these curves are, are essentially superimposable. Um, and so why this was, I think really an important result was that we could we could say or we could conclude um, that yes, it seems that these these changes to to fat, right, and in particular these enzymes that help to make unsaturated fat, um, that this induction or this activation of them upon treatment with this extract, that that was something that was really important uh, to increase the lifespan, um, extend the lifespan under under those conditions, okay? So it was, it was giving a little bit insight into how, how it may be working. And then the last thing that I'll talk about is just uh, figure five, and I'll talk about this, uh, I think, pretty simply and briefly. And the major point here is that um, there is a, a growing push in, I would say, aging biology, um, research um, to focus not just on lifespan as a measure. And, and the reason is, is that, you know, if you have a group of people, a group of 20 or 30 people, and you ask the room, uh, who, who in the room wants to, you know, if given the opportunity, would want to live longer? And you would be surprised that, you know, I think a, a decent fraction of that group would actually say no. And I, and I think the reason is, is that most people assume that if you're going to live longer, what that means is you're just going to prolong um, maybe that period of sickness or the period of decrepitude at the end of life, right? And so um, one important thing is that when, when you're studying sort of aging and lifespan is that if there is a intervention um, that, that increases lifespan, it's really important to know if that's helping the animals to actually be healthier in later aging, right? Because you don't necessarily want an intervention that may increase or extend lifespan, but, but in the process, uh, you know, just extend the fraction of life where the animal is really unhealthy, because that would not be desirable. The, the, the obvious, I think, goal is to, to make a scenario where you increase healthy years, right, at the end of life. And so we did some assays that were specific to uh, C. elegans um, that are measures of what we would call um, health span in a way, but really more health in later age here. And so what we've, what we've looked at in this is we're looking at stress resistance. Um, and there is numerous lines of evidence from many uh, organisms, not just C. elegans, but many long-lived organisms tend to also show a high degree um, of stress resistance. And, and indeed, this can be considered really a marker of health. It is a validated marker of health in the worm. And the, the two that we're, 
we're looking at here in terms of resistance, we're looking at resistance uh, to a heat shock, and that's in panel A, and then resistance to an oxidative stressor, which is paraclot, which would be in panel E of figure five. And so um, in panel A, what you'll notice is that uh, if we just look at the black and magenta lines, uh, that when subjected to a heat shock, uh, in middle adulthood, so we'll say day seven of adulthood here, uh, the animals that had been treated with this extract up until this point, uh, they survived that heat shock uh, significantly longer. Uh, the thing that's interesting is if you look at the, the blue lines, so the solid blue line and the dashed blue line, these are the, the mutants that now lack some of these desaturase enzymes, the ones involved in the fat. And what happens when we do that is when you compare the two blue lines, now when you look at the, the, the animals that are treated with, with SCO, with the extract, the dash line, uh, they no longer do better. Um, so again, it seems like this, uh, this extract is promoting uh, uh, heat stress resistance, and it's doing so in part through um, some of these changes to fat regulation. Um, if you look at panel E, it's going to show you something very similar. Here again, we're looking at survival um, after being given this oxidative stressor called paraquat. Um, so again, the uh, magenta line, the animals that are wild type that were treated with the extract, they're, they're going to survive longer uh, once given the stressor, um, but that improvement is now eliminated or removed um, when, when those desaturase enzymes, uh, so in this case, fat six and fat seven, uh, when those are non-functional, right? So in that case, the SCO-treated version, which is the dash blue line, uh, that's actually doing worse than the, the, the control version in that case, okay? So the, the take home with that is that um, this extract is not only helping the animals to live longer, but that we have some lines of evidence that uh, these animals are actually healthier um, at least in middle, uh, trending towards later adulthood, um, which is encouraging. And the other thing that's interesting is both the lifespan extension and this improvement to stress resistance, it seems to require uh, the changes to fat. It requires uh, these desaturase enzymes that are helping to increase the levels of unsaturated fat um, in the animals treated with the extract. So I'll just sort of uh, summarize here at the end, and then we can we can talk a little bit if anyone has some questions. But um, there are, I think, three uh, interesting points here to to think about. The first is that um, in this study, um, what we've what we've found is that this this extract is is pro longevity, and that its pro longevity effects actually. Um, have something to do with the increased fat. And um, that may be something that is, um, you know, maybe counterintuitive or surprising to some people. Um, because typically when we, when we hear about fat sort of in a, um, you know, just general public discourse, um, it's, it's often discussed as something that's, that's bad. Um, and, and here it's actually, uh, pro longevity, it's it's helping with stress resistance, and this this fits in uh, with a with a lot of emerging evidence. Um, again, suggesting complexities, right, and that there are there is this essential nature uh, for fat, and especially specific types of fat, 
um, to be pro-health and in this case, pro-longevity. Um, there, there have been, uh, of course, several other studies that have been done uh, to show this, um, including in the worm. So Anne Brunet's group at Stanford, they've done uh, really beautiful work uh, making this point. Um, and in their case, what they've been looking at are genetic mutants um, that, again, are, are somehow uh, dysfunctional in this regulation um, of the fat, um, and, and, and this compromises uh, lifespan extension, right? Uh, in our case, what's a little bit different is we have this natural plant extract, which we can give the animals, and it almost turns on this program uh, to mimic this response, right? And we're not actually changing anything at a genetic level. It's just giving this natural plant extract, um, and it's able to, to, to do this, which is, I think, really quite striking. The second thing is that, um, you know, one question we get is, are there any specific compounds or molecules that are known to be part of this extract um, that, you know, we could, you know, go after or potentially tackle as, as opposed to this complex mixture that's an extract? Um, is there really a defining uh, compound? And so uh, Dr. Jackie Stevens, again, who had done some of the initial work uh, identifying and working with uh, uh, this SCOPA extract and uh, fat cell differentiation, um, her group has identified some bioactive compounds, um, but individually they don't fully recapitulate what the extract does. And uh, this is a common theme, a uh, recurring theme that you you know, I think you see over and over again in botanicals research uh, where the extract really requires the complex mixture um, in order to bring about this effect. And so um, as of now, we don't know. We don't know if there are any uh, specific compounds that are, say, prevailing in this mechanism, uh, but it would certainly be uh, something interesting to, to explore a little bit more in the future. And then the final thing that I'll I'll say is, um, again, um, C. elegans gives a lot of advantages for studying uh, this, this type of problem uh, as it relates to lifespan and aging just because of the fact that it's relatively short-lived. Um, it would be exciting, you know, especially given, given what's known about the effects of the extract on mammalian cell culture or on, uh, say, mice-fed a high-fat diet. Uh, to, to further really pursue this or look at this and see the effects um, of the extract um, on mammalian, uh, you know, animal aging, uh, especially now that we have, I think, some evidence uh, from this invertebrate system uh, that it can have a positive effect. And so I think if we found that, that would be something that would be, you know, really quite interesting. It could also sort of direct new paths for, for studying potential interventions that maybe someday down the line, uh, you know, we could, we could move forward, uh, you know, making some sort of applications for, for humans potentially. But this is just a first step of, of getting at it and sort of defining it um, as something that potentially can play a role in some of these pathways. And it's doing so by a, what seems to be an interesting mechanism. Yeah, thank you so much for this wonderful presentation and uh, explaining this very interesting research since I'm also aging. <laughs> <laughs> a, a question I have 
uh, like a more general one because it was also mentioned that there are a few people that have higher body fat and are still you know quite healthy and age quite healthy and um so does it matter basically where like if it's induced by this compound or uh, can it also like is is there a general rule now for like you have less body fat you live longer like is there even a rule like this uh, like can we still yeah it's a great question so i don't think there's a general rule and i think uh, there are there's complex regulation here um and that there there are instances um in in humans and even in sort of experimental animals um uh, where you have individuals who are obese, um, but still very metabolically healthy um, uh, under certain measures. Um, and, and so the question then is, okay, well, there's, there's fat in these different, different situations, right? But there could be variations in, in types of fat. There could be variations in where the, felt, the fat is, is sort of held or stored or where it's sort of located, right? Um, and also how that fat is mobilized, right? How is it sort of changing throughout the body? Um, and again, this is something that can be affected uh, possibly through diet, possibly through genetics. There are, are likely several branches um, that, are, that are working on this to, to influence what that is. Um, in our study, what we what we think is interesting, and and I think again is is mirrored um, in the the more genetic analysis by the Brunet lab, um, is that if you have uh, certain ways to increase this unsaturated fat, uh, you know whether you call it a stock here or a pool, um, that that can be pro longevity that that can actually exert some sort of health benefit. Um, but yes, your question, I think, is, is something that is still, it's a, it's a uh, you know, it's not, I think, just very distinct, a yes or no. I think it's much more uh, context dependent, um, but it's, it's really, I think, an interesting question for sure. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I wanna give, everyone else uh, opportunity to ask questions so please flash your mic and uh, if you have a question and then um, take your turn so okay um yeah let's uh start with abyss jake um dr shah um kiko and then eli is coming to the stage so okay go ahead thank you yeah, I saw Jamie unflashing his mic, so I can probably go after him. Oh, sorry, Jamie. I'm well, sorry. me, okay, me. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the talk, Doctor. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, one thing that's jumping into my mind right now, to take it to uh, uh, the beginning, the general thing, I was curious, when you're working on, um, like you talk about you know, reversing aging and everything, did you have any part of your investigation into this where you had to, alter your perception of aging because of course in literature and everything we think of aging as as like its own thing like can i get one pound of aging please but it's not it's a category describing a number of effects based on time 
right? So when you mm -hmm. say aging, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And so you're right. This is, um, it's sort of a confounding thing is how do you define biological age, you know, beyond just the time aspect, how if we're, if we're looking, say, at an animal or at a cell. So, you know, obviously, you know, again, one other thing that I think is really interesting with aging um, from a biological standpoint is if you are just walking down the street and you walk past a, a human, a person who is 60 years old and a person who is, uh, say, 20 or 30 years old, you can pick this out. If you walk past a dog who is 12 years old versus a dog that's two years old, you can pick this out. And the same thing actually applies for worms. If, you, if you're looking at a 15-day-old worm versus a three-day-old worm, you can pick this out by eye. And so um, a lot of what I do, so we didn't do it as much in this project, but a lot of what I do is actually at um, a cellular level, like really at the level of cells. Um, and just like a, a, a full body of an animal, if you look at an individual cell that's making up a multicellular animal, um, there are certain hallmarks or characteristics that an old cell will show that a younger cell uh, doesn't show. And so um, going back to your question with this, how do you really define aging? You know, at this point, it's still, it's really hard. Um, we can, from a cell biology perspective, from a molecular perspective, we can rely on some of these hallmarks, some of these appearances, some of these phenotypes um, to sort of categorize a cell as looking old versus looking young. And we can also uh, see how these change, right? And so for types of studies where we're looking at um, you know, aging markers, you can, sometimes there are natural in instances where you see an aging marker uh, sort of disappear or, or go away um, when given some sort of intervention, okay? So again, these are something that you would naturally accumulate with age, but maybe you give an intervention, you give some treatment, or you look at some natural biological process, and these things naturally reverse. Now, whether or not that really means that age as a clock, as a time, as that, 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 that is something that's being reversed. We don't, we don't know what's keeping that time, um, or really what that means. Um, but your, your point that there are several, several aspects of that are, are certainly true. We know this at the level of cells. It's not just, uh, one particular molecule or protein or factory within the cell, uh, or DNA versus uh, something else. These are all happening really at a systems level. And so, um, yeah, it's quite complicated, um, but there are a lot of people working on it. And there's a lot of, I think, really, really fascinating work that's coming out um, along the lines of, of cellular rejuvenation, right? How to, how to at least at a, at a characteristics level, uh, take a cell that shows signs of aging and to, to make it appear younger. And then if you couple that to some of these more physiology, uh, physiological analysis, such as lifespan um, or, or other sort of measures at more of really a, an organismal level, you can, you can test. You can test if this is having some sort of effect um, also 
you know, really at a performance of a, of a full individual? Is that, is that individual uh, maybe gaining more youthful uh, health or characteristics? Thank you very much, Doctor. We had a guest speaker, but it's a while ago and I forgot his name. He's at uh, Columbia University that did, uh, that developed a test in blood that looks at epigenetic markers where you can basically transiently uh, look at aging markers. He right, there's a, a lot of research that I know of too that's looking at sort of epigenetic clocks um, this is so. This is actually one aspect uh, that we don't do as much of. We we have looked at this somewhat transgenerationally across generations. Uh, we have a project that's related to that. Um, but there are there are several groups that are really interested at the the epigenome as a as part of this clock for sure. Yeah, Dr. Shah, please go ahead. Oh, this is your turn. Thank you, Dr. Shah. Yeah. Uh, hi, Adam. Uh, great presentation. Great paper. Um, thank you for walking us through uh, each um, each part of your findings. I do have a couple of questions. The first one being, uh, did you um, notice any kind of change, behavioral changes in the two, like in the wild mm -hmm. type and the treated, um, like C. elegans nematodes? So the reason why I'm asking is that even though um, C. elegans don't have like this myelinated neuronal structure that maybe, you know, the the sort of like the delayed aging uh, thing can actually manifest itself as, um, you know, the the worms themselves actually becoming more active. Did you did you observe that? I'll start with that one. Yeah, so that's a great question. And so we did test this and this was actually one of the the few changes that we, we did see. There were several that we we weren't able to detect, but one thing we did see was that uh, their their movement changed, and this this is something that's actually the opposite of maybe what would be considered a, a positive, right? And so, um, you know, what you're rightly suggesting is, you know, maybe you would see that the animals are more active, or you know, again, we would consider maybe a more youthfulness being. Uh, that they're they're moving around and they're maintaining this movement capacity later into age. Um, what we found with these animals was that they actually moved slower, um, and they did this from a young age. And uh, so, if we were looking at the the extract treated animals, even from really the first couple of days of adulthood, um, they were slower uh, than the controls. Um, and from the way they were moving, it actually seemed like it was something where um, it's probably related to the changes in, in, in the worm body, that the worms were a little bit shorter and that they were just stockier. They were, they were um, thicker because I think, you know, it's partly because of this, this fat that's, a, that's accumulated. Um, and so you're right. By this measure, it's something that's a little bit... Um, less appealing um, because they, they, they aren't moving really as well when they're younger. But the thing that was interesting is if you follow this out sort of with time as they're aging, um, you know, they're going to get to a point where they sort of, uh, they'll be at the same level as the controls. 
and then they'll certainly still be living longer in the, the controls. So after the controls have died, um, these animals are still moving around at that point. And so, um, yeah, this is something that we we uh, we're still thinking about a little bit, and it's a it's a it's a great question. Um, and, and you know, we think there are other uh, health parameters here um, that we've we've been looking at in terms of stress resistance. Um, obviously, with lifespan, and there are a few other things we've been we've been considering. Um, but there, there, this could come with some some other effects or some other side effects. And in the worm, one of these seems to be these worms are a little bit slower when they're younger, and that's that's probably related to the the increased fat. Gotcha. Thank you for that. Um, my second question is, um, like, what is the actual mechanism as to how fat can actually prolong uh, aging? Is it kind of alleviating the oxidative uh, stress, or is it sort of acting like um, sort of an absorbent to, you know, detrimental compounds that can be, that, that may have been ingested because, um, you know, some, uh, you know, excess amount of like vitamins or any kind of opioids are fat soluble for the most part. So I'm just wondering if the fat is actually kind of reducing the, the distribution of these detrimental uh, compounds throughout the body. Is that, is that a fair way of saying how um, fats can actually reduce or at least like, increase lifespan? Yeah, I think that's that's uh, you know a fair possibility or for, uh, a fair you know sort of model to work with. Uh, you know, again, these these sort of fat molecules or you know lipids, they're going to be um, they're going to be a normal part of of cellular architecture um, of cellular signaling. Um, they're going to be involved in these these different types of processes. Um, and so you're right. There's there's a few different ways that it could it could work, and the and the specific mechanism that you're talking about um, here is is certainly one that could feed into it. In terms of our um, our particular model, um, we don't know really downstream of of the elevated fat. What is that? necessarily doing we know some of the upstream upstream signaling some of the upstream pathways um, that are that are helping to, to activate some of these things these enzymes that are that are making the unsaturated fats um, but in our specific case we we haven't really pinpointed downstream of the fats uh, why that is so that's a great open question particularly for our uh, our experimental model so um, there was a paper that I think like 2015 um, that I believe was the first paper to um, demonstrate extent, extension of lifespan and incidentally also uh, vitality, um, though I forget whether that extended to reproductive success or not, um, of, of antioxidants in, in an animal. Um, but it was specifically uh, combinations of antioxidants. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was um, vitamin E, N-acetylcysteine, and quercetin um, in rotifers. That's that's the important thing in rotifers. So what I was wondering is, um, are you looking to uh, evaluate combinations? Because it turned out that combinations were critical. Yeah, so and that's that's sort of a key aspect of the the extract itself, right? Is that by nature this extract is going to be 
um, a complex mixture of different compounds, some of which, uh, again, the Stevens lab has, has identified uh, through, through fractionation studies by taking different fractions and trying to see what's there. Um, we have yet to move on to the point of maybe taking some of these compounds and, and testing them in, in combination uh, to see if, you know, even if there isn't a single compound, uh, maybe there are two or, you know, some sort of uh, minimal uh, threshold there, some sort of minimal subset that, that would be able to do it. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. And you can even think about, um, you know, we think that this, this extract is, is working to extend lifespan by a, a somewhat specific mechanism um, and that there are other longevity mechanisms that can naturally be tapped in the cell that are um, actually outside of this mechanism that are, that are sort of parallel strategies, right? And so you could even imagine giving this extract in combination uh, with something else uh, that maybe acts by an opposite route um, and seeing if there are even additive effects, right? If, if in combination they can, they do even better. Um, and that's something that is a really interesting question that we have not um, attempted yet, but it could certainly be done. Dr. Shah, please yeah, go ahead. Thank you so much. So, uh, I don't know. Dr. Shah, it's your, uh, please, please, um, sure. please speak. Uh, okay, thank you so much, Adam, for sharing your research. So, a couple of the points. First of all, it was very interesting to me in the first part because in the one-third of the lifespan, you keep track on Delta-9 enzyme. And the second part was suggestion of the alternative is metformin from the extract that you just gathered from the C. elegans and somehow with the possibility and of the, I mean, gene cloning and uh, transferring the genome to different, I mean, animals. And you know that this is all possible right now. And there is a protocol for C. elegans specifically. This part was very interesting to me, but in the last part of the paper, you mentioned about the bioactive compounds from ESCO, which were identified. And specifically, you talk about the cholinergic acid, which it was not enough that it can play a role or promote adipogenesis in mammals. So I was just wondering if you have any further information around this part and what other compounds, bioactive compounds you found throughout your research? Yeah, so, yeah, that's a great question. And so there, um, so currently we do not have any uh, further information on this. So there are some uh, novel bioactive uh, compounds that are, that are part of this, um, that are, that are being studied uh, by by some other groups, um, and we've we've yet to again take take sort of the compound approach um, to the worms, just because sort of the I think the precedence of what's been found um, working in mammalian cell culture um, has yet to 
find anything that can really fully recapitulate um, the entire extract um, on its own. And so, um, yeah, I mean, this is sort of a question that we as well as our collaborators that also work on this extract um, that we get a lot is, is because, you know, typically if you think, so you, you mentioned Matt Foreman and that's a, that's a great example. And so Matt Foreman um, is, I think, you know, very well known as sort of a, a diabetes uh, drug. Um, there are also some trials currently uh, with metformin as a, um, as a, as a longevity intervention uh, in humans. Um, and metformin has a, an herbal uh, uh, botanicals uh, origin or sort of background. That's, that's how that was um, originally discovered and described. Um, but we're not at that stage yet with, with this extract. And, you know, one possibility may be that it's really just the extract itself, which is the most powerful um, because it's, it's something about the complex mixture and the different, the different things working together in some way. So the, the kind of unsatisfying answer, I think, is that we don't have any further information at this point. But if we could get to the point where we could test it, and you know, one way or another, I think get better a better idea on uh, the sufficiency of certain compounds versus the extract, I think that would really be a a, a good step forward. So your material was not transgenic, right? The no. CL against was not transgenic. There was wild species that you just used. Well, so it's a laboratory. It's a laboratory strain. So it is. It's a laboratory wild type. It's called N2 strain. And so when we're doing just our standard feeding of the extract to these animals, it's just the the wild type laboratory strain. Uh, so these are not wild um, isolates of of C. elegans. Okay, so thank you. Wow, that's so interesting. I um, had a question about the the botanical source of metformin, because as you had mentioned, um, sometimes the greatest power in these types of interventions is the synergy. Oh yeah, yeah, certainly. So um, I'm not sure. <laughs> that I can speak to that as well. I'm not really the metformin expert, um, but I don't know. Could you just elaborate a little bit on what your, what the, the question is, I guess? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, well, you know, as we know, a lot of different types of interventions have a botanical root source before they become synthetic and uh -huh. are manufactured and distributed in that fashion. So I was curious, um, you know, we're talking about C. elegans. Is what's the, is there a, a, like where does metformin come from? But where does metformin come from in terms of the original botanical origin? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there, I think there were is, there are herbal medicines that I think were originally uh, you know traced back I think really to medieval Europe. So I, I forget exactly the name of what what the 
um, the specific herb was, but it, it was some sort of uh, flowering herb. Uh, and, and, you know, these things are used sort of in uh, historical or traditional medicine, right, where these, these different parts or different plants uh, have a history. And this is the same thing with uh, scopa. So this is really widely used in, in Asia uh, almost as a, as a diabetes treatment. Um, and so, yes, I, I, I'm not exactly clear on at what point metformin went from being more of an herbal uh, origin to being more of, as you're saying, mass-produced. Uh, in the terms of our studies, this is actually one of the limitations is that some of the, the compounds that we are interested in, in working with from our extract, um, we don't really have um, sufficient levels of these at this point or sufficient amounts of these to really um, get at that and so that that is certainly something with with our progress as it relates to that where where we're currently limited understood yes and here at science society i'm not really sure is a valid answer <laughs> um yeah thank you uh i think uh jake uh Kiko and shane you were next uh, and i wanted to check with you adam um, because we are a little bit over an hour, um, if you still have time for a few questions. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Oh, great. Thank you so much. You've been so nice. Thanks. Awesome. So my question is, um, uh, how do I, is it possible for someone like myself to make this? If not, where do I get it? And is there any studies? And if there is, where do I sign up? <laughs> kind of yeah. question. Yeah, so this is one. So. Currently, so this is not commercially available in the United States, um, and obviously there's no approvals on this. Um, and, and so the, the simple answer is really no to, to most of those questions. Um, I, you know, the hope is obviously if we, if we can push this research forward, um, you know, there, there, there may be better evidence that this can be developed as a dietary supplement, um, or at least some aspect of it. Uh, but we're we're not really at that stage yet. Bummer. <laughs> Might get to ask. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Uh, they're pretty quick though. I think. Um, the first question. Uh, like I think you had said earlier about. Uh. Uh, skull having a role in, in unsaturating fats. Am I correct when I, when I say that? Yes. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, so is there like any, the first question, is there any like uh, preference? I don't know if you guys check for this for like the unsaturation to be cis or trans. Yeah. So the only thing that we've, we've looked at. So the, the, um, the, the type of enzymes that we're, we're looking at there, they're specifically involved in, in making um, the monounsaturated fatty acids. Um, so we haven't biochemically looked at monounsaturated fatty acids. We've, we've looked some at unsaturated fatty acids, but not um, at monounsaturated fatty acids. But uh, so you may have heard of these as these MUFAs or MUFAs. Um, but the fact that these three enzymes, the FAT5, FAT6, FAT7, uh, so these are, these are MUFA biosynthesis 
uh, enzymes and the fact that they're required, it, it really leads us to think that there's something about the MUFAs in particular, uh, but there's, there's more work we have to do there on that, on that topic. Sweet. And my second question is, uh, damn it. I think I forgot it. Wait, give me a second. Yep. Uh, oh, oh, oh damn it. I just lost it again. Okay. I can't remember it. My bad. That's fine. If you remember, just chime back in. Hey, Shane, go ahead. Welcome to the stage. Nice to having you back. <laughs> Thank you. So my question goes a little bit ways back. Um, I was curious if there were different results based upon the animals that the uh, chemical was being tested on, as well as if there were any differences among humans. So are you talking about in terms of like the uh, genetic makeup of the animals? Yes. Uh, my curiosity is um, kind of where those similarities are cross species. Um, is a, thought, a question I was lingering in my head at a certain point when you were speaking. And so I don't know exactly where to cite that. Okay. Okay. So let me try to answer it some and, and just let me know if I can clarify any of the points. So um, the, so, so we're using sort of a laboratory sort of wild type normal strain. Um, and when we give them the extract that that's, that sort of genetic background lives about 40% um, longer on average um, than, than that same wild type strain that's treated with control. It's, it's just not treated with the extract. Um, there are certain though genetic mutants that when you give the extract to them, they no longer live as long. So some of these mutants are ones that have uh, mutations in the genes that are for these desaturases. Um, and these type of genes have um, what would be known as homologs or homologous genes, sort of similar genes uh, in humans that exist. Uh, there's another gene that I didn't talk about, which is called DAF16. Um, and what this is, is it's a, it's a type of a protein that's called a transcription factor. Um, and, and what happens is when we give the animals uh, the SCO extract, uh, this, this particular DAS16 protein moves into the nucleus and it turns on all these different longevity genes. And what happens is when we look at animals that have the mutant DAF16, uh, they also no longer live long when given the extract. And uh, DAF16 is it's, it's also known as FOXO and other, other animal species. Um, and this is something that's, that's known to be relevant to longevity in, in mammals too. Um, so the way that this is acting, uh, you know, in principle, it could act on similar types of genes or pathways, uh, in, in human or human cell types. Um, just, just because of gene homology. And, 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 and I think that the evidence that we have there is, is working with some of these mutants where we give them the extract and they no longer live as long. So, um. You know, we think that there's something causal about that. Does that does that help a little bit, or did you have a, a, a I guess addition to that? No, that was great. Thank you. I remember now. Okay. Oh, so uh, my question is: uh, Are there any plans to uh, maybe look into like metabolism? Because uh, like 
how I was kind of thinking about it was like if it's like has a role in making more unsaturated fats, would that then make uh the the fats more available to be used? You know what I'm saying? Like even as it gets older, so like maybe it doesn't have to to because it's like work is hard. You know what I'm saying? Like right. The, yeah. yeah. So, so one thing that's interesting uh, with some of these, um, s- some of the pathways that we think that that this extract is working through. Um, if you look at mutants where these pathways are are active, you see a similar sort of accumulation of of these fat stocks. And you're right; um, it could be that they're just being held. Um, in almost a storage depot where they're not being mobilized, right? Or they're, this uh, lipolysis isn't happening, sort of the breakdown of the lipids. Um, and that it, it's maybe useful under, under certain scenarios. Um, and so as towards really looking more at like a metabolic profile or a, a lipid profile, certainly, um, that would be something which you know, really, if that's not my lab's expertise, um, but it would be interesting to collaborate um, with, with another lab because it would be quite, quite easy, um, you know, in theory, to just take these different populations of worms and to, to see what's around, right? Even beyond lipids, right? Some of these metabolites, um, looking really at metabolomics, right? That's sort of, a, I think, a, a, a trending area of trying to understand the whole uh, metabolome. Um, so we, we, don't, we don't know again. We actually don't know downstream of the fat um, in, this, in this particular pathway what it's doing. But um, yeah, I think your suggestion is a good one and it could reveal almost unexpected, unexpected results. I had a quick question. So you had mentioned that you had stained for the saturated versus unsaturated fat. Could you tell us what technique you used for that? Oh, so we didn't actually stain for saturated versus unsaturated fats. We were just using, uh, uh, there was a colorimetric assay uh, that that comes in a kit from a company where where it detects relative levels of unsaturated fats. So it's not actually doing it relative uh, to the saturated fats. Got it. And then you had mentioned that there's an overlap between the genome of C. elegans and hominids. Could you quantify that? Yeah. So, you know, that's a good question. So I don't know exactly what the percentage is. Let me see if I can look it up really quick. But so C. elegans has about 20,000 genes. Okay. And, uh, and a human? The human is, it's not that much different. Okay. Uh, give me one second. I'm just going to try to put in a quick search here. I, I, I believe it's 30,000 for humans. Yeah. I'm trying to find the percentage. Uh, it says about, about 70 to 80% of the protein coding genes about similarity, about, about 83%. It seems like. Is that, uh, is that substantially similar in terms of statistical analysis obviously it's pretty cool that you can see right through them through bright field right <laughs> Can't do yeah that with humans. Ab- <laughs> absolutely and uh, so the thing is too you know when you're 
when we're looking at this and the genes that we're studying, so all of these different genes that we're studying, even just in the example of this, this paper, so the STAF16 FOXO, uh, I didn't mention we studied this AMPK, uh, which is a, a type of kinase, it's another type of enzyme, uh, these, these different desaturases. Uh, we looked at different longevity mutants and supplemental materials, so it's like insulin signaling, uh, TOR, which you may have heard of before, uh, some mitochondrial mutants. Uh, these are all genes that have conserved homologs in humans as well as in these other experimental animals that people will use, such as like flies, um, uh, mice. There, there are going to be homologs, right? Uh, one thing that could be different and that you do see a lot as you as you scale up. So, um, you know, certainly when you move some, from something like yeast, so even like yeast is going to have many, many of these similar types of genes and there is going to be overlap. Uh, but as you start moving to the human genome, uh, with these different genes, you see many copies, several copies. There's going to be duplications. There are going to be genes uh, that produce maybe different isoforms or, 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 you know, really the same thing, but somewhat specialized, right? Maybe in a different tissue, maybe with a slightly different part. Um, and so, yes, it will build in complexity, but these core components and especially the core regulation machinery that we, uh, you know, the field has really defined to, to control the aging process, these are, these are all things that you would certainly find um, as part of the human genome. Fascinating, thank you for that answer. And I was curious if cortisol was in part of the markers that you were measuring given that there's overlap. And I can't imagine that, uh, you know, you had mentioned that the, the fat, you can tell the difference of between controls on based on the assimilation of the fat or the production of fat tissue. And so I was curious, um, you know, is, is this a, uh, a distribution that is even throughout the organism? Because in humans, uh -huh. these, these types of manifestations tend to, up, tend to end up in the midsection due to physics yeah. and all these other things. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So we did not test cortisol uh, specifically, um, but you're right. So when we when you look at by Brightfield at this, um, when when you're looking at the the uh, extract treated animals, uh, when they're on sort of a bright light background, um, the animals appear darker. So they actually have they're not you know, they're maybe more opaque, like they just appear darker through that. They, they almost look less transparent in a way. Um, and most of this, this fat, so if you're thinking of the, the worm, so the worm is about a, a millimeter, okay, in length. This is going to be the size of a, of a period in print. Um, but if you, um, so they're about a millimeter in length and then, uh, you know, obviously about the 10th of the size and the width. Um, most of this fat, when we do this staining, so if you're going from sort of head to tail, you'll see it distributed sort of along this length. Uh, but a lot of it is going to be really in sort of the gut region, so then in the intestine. And that again is gonna go along this whole body axis, the body axis sort of from the head to the tail. Um, so we will, see that um, and you will um, so you know from the pictures that we have here that are really zoomed out um, 
we're not making that out. One other thing that's a little bit of a complication here um, that was something that we have been asked is that um, when you look at just even worms as they are aging, their fat distribution, it changes. It's not as sort of localized as it, as it was when they were younger. It becomes a little bit more disorganized and, and, and widespread. Um, so this is a natural part of aging. And when we do our analyses, we're doing these not in, in young animals where the, where the fat staining just actually looks beautiful. Um, it's a little bit uh, disorganized because we're looking at these at day seven, day 10 animals where the fat already just by this point uh, is, is a little bit different. Uh, but yes, the accumulation that we, we will see, it's, it's not necessarily just in one part of the body. Um, but I see your point. I see your point with sort of extending this of thinking of it from, a you know, a human and sort of maybe, um, obesity or age related obesity in humans and where sort of fat tends to tend to, to go. Um, it's completely different though, because this is a completely different medium. C. elegans, uh, you know, humans don't exist in soil or suspension. Our suspension is O2, right? Yeah. 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 No, you're completely right. Thank you so much, Dr. Uh, Adam, for, for sharing that. Yeah. I'll pass it on to Jamie. Jamie, you want to ask a couple questions? And thank you for spending so much time with us. We know we're already going over your time, but we just had a couple of last questions uh, that Jamie wanted to ask. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Doctor. Uh, this is a couple of questions from an um, audience member, Marble. Uh, she wanted to know, she heard you use the word paraquat um, when you were giving your presentation, and she was wondering if that's what she thinks it is, uh, being like an herbicide um, with toxic chemicals. Uh, can you explain a bit more about why you would use something like that, like a toxic thing, in experiments like this? Yeah, so that's exactly right. So that is true. You'll hear a paraquat talked of um, as as part of as part of herbicides, and, and part of how uh, paraquat is is working, or experimentally how um, we're using it here, is we're using it to induce stress. Okay, so so that's exactly right. It is um, toxic, and if you give it um, at at toxic levels or at levels. Uh, where it can induce things like ROS or reactive oxygen species, um, this is going to trigger some sort of stress response, okay? And, and so this type of stress that is triggering, uh, the first type of stress we were using in, in panel 5A, that was a heat stress. The paraquat stress, again, because it's this, this toxin that's going to, uh, to act as sort of an inducer of the reactive oxygen species, uh, this is going to cause oxidative stress. And so the reason that we're giving it is to, to try to see how well the animals can, can respond to this. If we stress the system out, um, are the animals able to better survive? Okay. And the, the idea or, or what our finding was, was that even though we're giving uh, the animals paraquat, um, and, and indeed they will die off, they're going to die off, you know, let's see, probably around 50 60 hours after the, the botanical treatment. agent paraquat just to be specific i'm sorry is a paraquat is the a fruit or what is paraquat exactly 
paraquat is just a, it's part it's a chemical i don't know what what we're sorry paraquat is also as far as i know the the common name of a fruit so i was trying to differentiate that oh i'm sorry yeah no <laughs> yeah and so if the panel e uh so yes so it is toxic when we give it to it the animals die off much sooner than than they would have if we if we didn't give it to them but all the animals in panel e were treated with paraquat um but the thing that's i guess different about the controls and the the scopa treated animals is that the uh the scopa treated ones can still survive longer just like they survive longer under heat stress so yes they're dying off quickly than they would if we didn't have paraquat but we give them a little bit of protection somehow if they've also had this extract. Fascinating. And the last question she had was, do you have any thoughts on these balanced nature pills that she's heard that are uh, around like the internet and stuff? Like, are they, are, are these just like junk or? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the middle part of the question. Um, she was asking, uh, do you have any thoughts on balanced nature pills that she's seen around the internet, like advertised, and if they're like, you know, nonsense, or if there's anything to something like that? So some sort of like nature pills that are purported to have sort of longevity effects or anti-aging effects? I believe so, yeah. 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 So I don't know specifically what, um, you know, specifically what's being, uh, what specific pills maybe are being referenced in those scenarios. Um, and I think a lot of this from a, from a pharmacological standpoint, sort of approaching aging from a pharmacological standpoint is something that's very much up for debate. That is, uh, is a new science and that again for some of these excellent questions that have been raised earlier in terms of how you define aging or how you define this clock um, is is why it's still a very new field and so um what i would say is that you know when it comes to sort of pharmacological interventions um that um are moving forward or progressing to trials to be tested to see if they have some sort of longevity capability um, in humans. There are some that you will hear what hear about. Um, so there'll be like uh, metformin, as we've talked about. Uh, you may hear of NAD uh, that that uh, also um, will come up when talking about sort of uh, metabolic uh, functioning, metabolic health. Uh, there's rapamycin, which is a, a TOR um, inhibitor. And the, the, so the interesting thing with rapamycin is there's a, there's a study that's being done um, out of University of Washington where they're, uh, they're enlisting sort of just people as citizen scientists uh, to enlist their, their pet dogs in, in sort of a rapamycin trial with the idea that uh, dogs live, you know, maybe a decade or, or longer, but they're not going to live 80 years like a like a human. Um, so, you know, really, from a pharmacological standpoint, that's where the science is, I think that's sort of where the, the consensus is. Um, although there there is a push, there is a push to start, I think, viewing aging as a disease. And, and I think there will certainly uh, be a lot of advancements from a drug standpoint, but it's going to take I think it's going to take a, a lot to sort of figure that out because again, some of our definitions are just 
they're they're kind of arbitrary in a way. And so we'll and and aging by nature, uh, studying aging, studying longevity by nature, it just takes time. So I think I think time will tell. Thank you very much, Doctor. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think that was all the questions that we had uh, on stage. Um, do any of the moderators have anything else to add? I have one question, Adam. By the way, you just talked about the DAP 16 and uh, not existing in a nucleus level, if I heard that right, correct? I'm sorry, not existing in when? So what do you mention about the DAP 16 and FOXO? Uh -huh. I might miss that part. Okay. I was so just we, wondering. Yeah. So what we found is that when we give the the worms the the scopa extract, um, that the DAF sixteen, the which is the worm FOXO, um, that we see it redistribute into the nucleus of the, of the cells in the intestine, and this is a typical um, relocation that happens when DAF sixteen FOXO is activated because it goes into the nucleus and it turns on all of these genes, uh, many of which are, are longevity genes. Um, and so we see this response um, when we give the scopa extract. And one thing that's interesting is that these, these fat, the desaturase genes, fat five, fat six, fat seven, these are actually targets of DAF16. So it makes sense that their, their expression, their levels would be upregulated um, in response to the to the treatment. And, and so what we've found with the mutants, though, is if you take a mutant which lacks a functional DAF-16 and you now give it this extract, the animals no longer live long. They no longer live longer than controls. And that, again, sort of fits with this, this DAF-16 being a core part of the response. On their fitting estate? or a starvation? So this is in fed stage. So they are fed, they're on, uh, so the worm food is just this, it's an E. coli lawn. And so we maintain the animals during this, these aging experiments um, on, on this lawn. Also with the growth factor, correct? I'm sorry? Also with, I mean, including growth factor? IGF or such a thing? No, so it's just it's just an auger. So it's a really simple auger um, that we have there that has just some you know standard salts in there, um, and then it's the E. coli lawn that's there. And the only thing that's different in our setup is that we've mixed in uh, the extract, which has been uh, dissolved in DMSO. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. We've been going an hour and a half. I really appreciate all the time and um, sharing with us your amazing research. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, um, so interesting and so very helpful. So I hope in a few years when I need this, <laughs> we'll have the open. We hope in a hundred years' time you can come back to the club and tell us how it all went right, yeah? Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you all so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Or maybe, so uh, I was just going to say, maybe you could just um, package the worms, freeze-dry the worms that you've used in your research, and then people can eat those, and it'll be an easy way to consume <laughs>
<laughs> Never mind. That's disgusting. Thank you so much, Doctor. This was really great having you here. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, and please come back anytime uh, for if you have updates on your research. If you want, would like to share more, uh, you're always welcome back. And um, yeah, and also we have more guest speakers coming. So if you or anyone here uh, would be interested in more um, guest speaker events like this, uh, follow the club. And just to give you a short overview um, of the rest of the week, uh, tomorrow morning at 9.30 a.m., we'll have Dr. Van Zunder. She is an amazing ALS researcher and she made uh, quite a breakthrough in recognizing a neuron toxin that is associated with ALS and it's a potential new um, way of treating ALS. Um, so I'm really um, looking forward to he hearing her talk. And then on Friday we have uh, joining us from Israel Alejandro Castrijon and he will talk about ex utero mouse embryogenesis so um, um, artificial utero um, uh, work I'm also really looking forward to that and again thank you so much Adam it was a great pleasure and thank you everyone for asking questions and yeah have a good night everyone thank yeah, you thank you all Bye. thank you Bye, good everyone. night Thank you. Thank you. Good night, Doctor. Three, two, one. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, everybody.